Hi, my name is Tim. I'm the interim pastor at RCC. Well, a few of you laughed. First gathering, I got nothing on that joke, by the way. Zero. It was a tough way to start, I got to tell you. I waited, and there was nothing, and I was like, all right, it's going to be a tough morning. But you never know. You never know. Um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've been a pastor for, for 25 years. I've, I've, you know, I've spoken on Sundays a lot, and, and if you've been around church, uh, you and, and honestly, if you just come on Easter, you've heard a lot. You've heard a lot of Easter sermons, no doubt. And there's no surprise ending on this one, by the way. It's the same every year. It's the same story. Jesus uh, comes from the tomb and, and raises from the dead, and and uh, that's the way the story will end today. Uh, but I hope that somewhere along the way today, uh, that we draw some connections with maybe things that might be more specific to our day in life currently, uh, where you and I enter the, into the story today. Because quite frankly, where I entered this story a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago is different than where I enter it today. And so you may find yourself in a similar place and suddenly the resurrection of Jesus means something a little different to you today uh, as, we, as we move through this uh, process uh, of the story uh, in our natural progression through the Gospel of Luke, which we've been going through for the last several weeks. Anybody ever heard of uh, Sir William Garrow? Raise the hands if you've heard of Sir William Garrow. I don't see any hands. He uh, was alive in the 1700s. Uh, almost certainly, though you've never heard of Sir William Garrow, he's influenced your life in some way, shape, or form, or you've at least heard uh, the phrase that he coined, which is innocent until proven guilty. How many of you have heard of that? Innocent until proven guilty. Okay. So almost all of us have. It's interesting, right? Somebody who's had such an influence uh, in our justice system, uh, we might not know. The concept, right, is one of our primary, primary core values of our legal system. People have these basic rights. For example, the right to a fair trial, a jury of their peers, and the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt lies on the prosecution. There's a presumption of innocence, that's not quite the same in the court of public opinion, is it? The court of public opinion is quite different, in fact. The court of public opinion, sometimes all it takes is an accusation, and then you're guilty, and that's all, that's all it takes. And from then on, that is the story, and that's where the story goes. And that's kind of where we see Jesus today as we move into Luke. Last week, we uh, looked at the passage where Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. And we talked about the city, some of you I, I think know, I, I, oh, I say this a lot, but I never want to make the assumption that church is something that you're used to or something that you do often. It wasn't the case when I started to come to church, and so it's helpful for me to sort of retell some of these things that maybe we take for granted. But the city of Jerusalem was the spiritual center for Israel. It was where the temple was located. It's where people went to celebrate uh, the Passover. And so people had come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The city itself, the name Jerusalem, means uh, city of peace or to bring peace. And so this is what's happening. Jesus enters into the city to celebrate the Passover. And people are celebrating the entrance of Jesus because there has been a movement of people. Jesus is, is like this populist character, okay? He had a affluent Following, But that affluent following was people like tax collectors who were generally despised, who were not part of, of kind of the, the elite. 
but mostly a blue-collar crowd of people who begin to follow Jesus because Jesus was upsetting the way things worked in the world and was turning that over continuously. So as he enters into Jerusalem, he continues to do the same thing. However, that week, from last week to the triumphant entry to this week, what he does is he continues to do that, but he kind of ups the ante. And his teaching gets a little bit more direct towards those who are causing religious division in Israel, particularly the religious leaders. We can't go into all the text today, but some of the things that happened during that time period in Luke chapter 19, the religious leaders begin to plot to have Jesus killed. But as you can imagine, they can't kill him just because public opinion is turned. They have to figure out a way to, to actually entrap him in some kind of uh, uh, guilty that, or some kind of, um, uh, some kind of thing that would cause him to be convicted uh, to be guilty. In chapter 20, we see that they set him up to be tricked, so they send people in to ask questions to try to trick him up. One of them is, is they ask him who they should pay taxes to, to Caesar or to somebody else. And so they're trying to trick him up in, in, in who actually is king. Uh, Judas then eventually agrees to betray Jesus for a sum of money. And then uh, Jesus has the, a last supper with his disciples, and then subsequently Jesus is arrested. And when Jesus is arrested, he is then put on trial. But there are two trials that are happening can, uh, side by side one another in parallel. There's the legal trial that's happening. That legal trial is going to go in front of Pontius Pilate, uh, who was the prefect of Rome in that area. And then there's the, the court of public opinion. And that one is being swayed by the religious leaders to say, this is a guy who is dangerous. This is a guy who's claiming to be king. This is a guy who is a liar. This is a guy, ultimately what they will accuse him of is claiming to be God himself. And so this is a dangerous person who has blasphemed God and needs to be put on trial. And so this, this is the stirring. The legal side is happening over here. The court of public opinion is happening over here and stirring that up. The interesting thing is during the court, during the, the actual legal trial, he's found innocent over and over and over again. Jesus is asked, are you the son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. This is to the religious leaders. And they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips that he is blasphemed. That term, I am, was a term that God used of himself to define I am who I am, or I am that I am. And so they took this to be, and many things that Jesus said, to be that he believes that he and the Father are one. So they sent him to trial over here on the legal side because they could not actually legally put him to death just in their own courts. They needed approval from the Roman government in order to put him to death. So they send him first to Pontius Pilate, which would be their first, uh, uh, first line of, of court trial. And Pontius Pilate says, I don't see anything here. I think this man is innocent of the charges that you're accusing him of. Uh, but if you, if you want, you can send him to Herod. So they take him to Herod. Now, here's the interesting thing. Remember Herod? Herod is the one who uh, has John the Baptist put into prison and ultimately has John the Baptist beheaded. This is the cousin of Jesus. 
we read about early on a few weeks ago. Not only that, he has plotted at least twice to have Jesus killed along the way because he sees this populist movement happening of Jesus. All of these people are beginning to follow Jesus and they're beginning to... um, They're beginning to believe that Jesus might be the Messiah and the King. So Herod is ready to put an end to that movement and to that progress, that progress or that that populist movement. So Herod is anxious to meet this person, Jesus. So they take Jesus to Herod and they accuse him. They said, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be the Messiah and a king, and he's subverting the nation. This is in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. They accuse him of rebellion, of tax evasion, and of planning a coup. Pilate announces him innocent. Herod also announces him innocent and sends him back to Pilate, basically saying, if you want to convict him, you're going to have to send him back to Pilate to do so. Now, when he goes before Pilate the next time, you may be familiar with this particular encounter that he has with Pilate. Pilate is ready to to claim his innocence. And in fact, there's a tradition on the Passover that he could release one prisoner. And there are several prisoners there, three of which are going to be crucified on that Friday. And so he gives them the opportunity to release one prisoner. He says, listen, I can have Jesus beaten and then we can release him if that's okay. And they're like, no, we want him crucified. He says, listen, you've got, there's an opportunity for me to release one prisoner. And he puts up Barabbas, who has been convicted and tried and found guilty in the court of law. But he can be released. And they said, give us Barabbas instead of Jesus on the release. Which is pretty incredible to think about, that in that moment, the court of public opinion about Jesus has taken such a turn that they would now side with this person, Barabbas, to be released instead of Jesus. So Pilate himself doesn't think that Jesus is guilty. And in fact, we have this sort of famous scene where his wife tries to convince him not to. She's had a dream, tried to convince him not to have him crucified. And he eventually, he eventually washes his hands of the blood of this innocent man and turns him over then to be crucified. N.T. Wright, uh, who is a New Testament theologian uh, and scholar, writes about this, about Barabbas. He said, all sinners, all rebels, all the human race are invited to see themselves in this figure of Barabbas. And so as as we do so, we discover in this story that Jesus comes to take our place under condemnation for sins and wickedness, both great and small. I want to revisit that word sin for just a second because we've talked about it a couple of times and, it, and it's one that I feel like we, we lose sight of in our kind of religious talk and conversation because sin simply becomes something about breaking a law or breaking a rule and then God has to judge us and and, and take care of that. And, and we're bad because we've broken these laws. And, and I think it, it makes God seem like God has sort of created some random, disconnected rules for us to follow, and then knowing we're going to break them. But sin 
in the Bible seems less like rules that God has made up for us to follow knowing we're going to break them and more like the departure from God's very nature. If God himself is love, our acts to one another and towards God happen in one of two planes and one of two spaces. They happen as consistent, permanent, eternal acts of love in this sense, that we always do things that are acts of kindness and love towards others and ourselves and in our relationships, always. And there's never a departure towards selfishness or using others or exploitation. When we do so, when we act in our own self-interest, when we act in a way that's exploitative or using of others, it's a departure from God's nature and God's character, the image in which you and I are created. And when we do so, we begin to see this unraveling, this departure, this almost snowball effect. And when you think about it in this way, and I've used this illustration before, but it's important for this morning as we think about Barabbas and our identity with Barabbas, that not just my sin, but if I think about all the times ever in my life that I have acted in a way that is a departure from and an unraveling of love in the world, in my relationships, with my family, with friends, with you, with others, with people who don't know how to drive in Boston, okay? Then, then I can begin to get a feeling of that unraveling. Now, if I add to that yours, and I put it in a pile, your whole life and my whole life, each one of you individually, and then us collectively, just as this one gathering of this one church in this community, and then we add all of the people in all of the churches that are gathered in this community, then all of the people who are, are part of this larger area of the greater Salem neighborhood. That's just one little area in an entire world of undoing of love, of selfishness and exploitation of others. And we get a sense of what is happening now as Jesus comes to the point of the cross, that all of that is being poured out right here in this moment. That in this sense, Jesus is a substitute for you and a substitute for me. In a sense, that he is recovering, restoring, and reconciling all that we have done wrong and being separated from God in God's very nature. That you and I might be reconciled to God and to one another and ultimately to all creation. We talked about how this story from Luke is a symphony. It's like this masterpiece that's playing in the background. The, the Old Testament gives us this baseline from which we, we hear the story. And I want to just put a couple of pieces to that in place. Turn that baseline up just a little bit for a moment. These are books that were written some, you know, 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And the prophecies themselves could be self-fulfilling, meaning Jesus knew them, and so he purposely fulfills them in some way in order to make them come true. It could be that the writers themselves went back and found the prophecies and wrote them in so as to make it appear that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. The third possibility is that Jesus actually did fulfill the prophecies, 
that were written some 500 to 1,000 years previously. And, and they're not in and of themselves proof that what happened is true. But they are some evidence with other things that are happening, not only in the story, but in our own life and the world where we go, okay, what does this mean? What do we do with this? For example, Isaiah 53, verse 12, the prophet Isaiah said that the king who would come, the Messiah, would be killed between two criminals. The psalmist in chapter 22 would tell us that the soldiers would gamble for Jesus' clothes, which is part of what we're told in the story as well, Luke. Psalms 22, 7 tells us that there would be mocking and sneering of the onlookers, which we're told over and over again in the story. And Psalm 69, 21 tells us about the sour wine that was offered to Jesus Again, something that the storytellers would have had no control over and Jesus had no control over. I want you to hear, I'm not saying these are, these are proofs and there are many, many more of them. They, they just point to something that might be a bigger part of the story worth listening to. In the court of law, Jesus was innocent. In the court of public opinion, he was very, very guilty. Let's remember that if Jesus is God's plan for salvation, then it makes sense that the forces of evil, the full force of evil, would assemble to thwart God's plan. That the, the full, I'm trying to even to understand the words, the, the, the feeling that you and I get when something is wrong, when somebody has wronged us or something has been done wrong in the world, and we see injustice, the full weight of the history of that is coming to bear in this moment. That's the picture of the cross. Not, not, just, not just some religious story, but a need to see that this isn't the way things are going to be. This isn't the way the world, this is the way the world works, but it's not going to win. It's either, it either signifies the victory of injustice, the victory of the powers of the world and the way the world works, signifies that there's no hope and that there is only the natural world or that there's something else that's happening in the story beyond the natural world. Even Jesus' last words are from a prophecy from the book of Psalms, one that was written by David. And he says this, into your hands I entrust my spirit. These are the last words of Jesus. Into your hands I entrust my spirit and the story could end here, where Luke says, and he breathed his last. <clears throat> As we get to the last chapters of the book of Luke, we're introduced to a character, one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, next to Jesus, of course. It's a guy named Joseph. Joseph is from a city of Arimathea. He's probably one of the wealthiest people in Jerusalem at the time. He was also a member of the ruling uh, council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin, which was the high court. Verse 51 explains that Joseph disagreed with the accusations that had been uh, brought and the judgment that had been brought to Jesus. He disagreed with the court of public opinion and he disagreed with the crucifixion. Joseph was an honorable, wealthy person and, and considered Jesus to also be innocent. Pilate pronounced him innocent. Herod, innocent. Pilate, again, innocent. A Roman centurion that we didn't even look at it was proclaimed his innocence, and now Joseph of Arimathea pronounces him innocent. Why would we care what Joseph thinks? I think Joseph's story is incredibly interesting, and maybe it's because I just feel like I resonate with Joseph's story. 
All four gospel writers tell us a little something about Joseph. And here's what they say. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us this in chapter 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate offered that and ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of a rock, and rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb, and went away. The gospel writer Mark says this about Joseph. Mark always is short and to the point. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Luke, the gospel we've been in, chapter 23, verse 50, says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Oh, sorry, that's uh, John. I'll get back to Luke. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And finally, John tells us this about Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So one possibility of the way the story ends is that Nicodemus, for whatever reason, decides out of honor of Jesus, he will go and, and ask for uh, the body of Jesus so that he can bury it. Been much easier for, Nick, or for uh, Joseph if he had simply walked away and went, well, I was wrong about that one, and just left Jesus' body there like the other bodies. But he stepped forward and went from secretly following to publicly identifying himself as a disciple of Jesus and went to the political leaders who have the ability and the right to actually have him put on trial to ask for the body of Jesus. And so the story could unfold that Jesus died, was buried, and the followers disbanded because Jesus was a failed prophet. It could also go that Jesus died, was buried, his followers continued his teachings, making disciples in an ongoing way. And the question would be, why would they do that? Why would they continue to make disciples of a failed, dead prophet? Well, maybe they refused to think of themselves as having been duped, or maybe they still believed in his teachings. But the reality is, is that within 300 years, by 350 AD, that small group, that small band of people who, who believed that Jesus raised from the dead and considered themselves disciples of Jesus grew from that small handful to 30 million people. From a small handful to 30 million people in the Roman Empire. If Jesus died and did not raise from the dead, then 30 million people began to follow the teachings of a failed prophet because the reality is that the way of the world, the power of the world, injustice wins every time. The power of the world works unless the resurrection occurs. An innocent man killed by the way the world works. And that's in spite of the fact that two million Christians would be martyred, killed for their belief and their faith by the year 325 AD. Two million people who in proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was in fact the king of a new kind of kingdom, would be put to death. Their numbers still grew. The Gospels and the ancient historians ever tell us that the early followers of Jesus believed and gave their life for the idea that Jesus did not 
remain in the tomb, did not remain dead. Luke describes the scene like this, and we'll jump to several verses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in, in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And in verse 12, then Peter hears the news and uh, he got up and he ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. It's not as if they just intuitively knew. They themselves had to go through the process of what has happened? What did they do with the body of Jesus? Where is he? This is not normal. This isn't what we necessarily thought was going to happen. They themselves had to go through this emotional and, and rational challenge. Did Jesus raise from the dead? What happened to the body of Jesus? Verse 13, now the same day, uh, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And so Jesus begins to talk about all the things that the prophets said. He goes back to the Old Testament prophets and says, these are all things that was the promise of what was supposed to happen. And then in verse 28, Luke says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's evening or it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave it to them, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were your hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? They got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Peter, to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke bread. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost. I want you to continue to wrap your minds around the fact that Luke continues to tell us this was not a predetermined conclusion for the disciples who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. They thought his body might have been stolen. They thought somebody might have done something else with the body. They weren't sure what had happened. And here they think they saw a ghost. It was not a predetermined idea that, oh yeah, Jesus, we come every Easter, we go, yeah, Jesus raised from the dead. This is not the case in the moment. And Luke goes out of his way not to just simply say, well, of course this is what happened. He goes out of his way to say, yeah, they weren't sure. There were doubts and there was uncertainty except for the promises that were made in the Old Testament and the witness with their eyes of what they saw. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and raise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Instead of the story of Jesus ending in death on the cross and buried in Joseph's tomb, 
the victory belonging to death and the power of the world, perhaps Luke and the gospel writers got it right. And these are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, to the miracle, the supernatural. There's a power greater than the power of the world at work in the world to bring hope, to bring peace, love, joy, and life, to overcome the sin and injustice, a power that forgives, a power that can end all war, a power that can bring hope and healing in your life and mine when the way of the world is having its way, a power that can bring life from death. And when you have experienced and you know that you are in need of a different kind of hope and a different kind of outcome. It is the miraculous that we're in need of in that moment. Way back at the beginning of the series in Luke, we talked about this word pneuma and that the scripture is God-breathed. And when Paul writes that, he's saying that the spirit is the breath of God, breathing life through the scriptures. That, that God when God first created humankind out of the dust of the earth, he, he breathed and animated life. So we've been doing this practice almost every week of reminding ourselves that the very breath is the breath of life. And so we're going to take a deep breath together, if you will, and let it out. And one more time, deep breath. The very breath that we breathe is animated by the breath of God. We are made in, in God's image. This breath, would it surprise us then? Should it surprise us that the God who animated all of creation from the dust of the earth would animate Jesus, the very presence of God would come to life, would, would begin to breathe in the tomb and come to life? The reason that gives me hope is that I've seen, I've been a part of in my own life, and I've seen over and over again in the lives of others where a miracle was needed, that a breath of life has come. Would it be surprising then that Jesus can bring that breath of life to your life and mine? Along the way, we've talked about this baseline, this, this beautiful symphony of the story that's happening in Luke. The Old Testament, which is all the prophecies and the story of Israel, that Jesus didn't just come on the scene separate from everything else. He comes in, in fulfillment of this story of Israel that's thousands of years old. It fulfills the promises. And so they recognize the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. There's the tenor. And that's the world that Jesus is a part of, the historical world. It's, it's not a fictional world. It's not a made-up world. It's Pontius Pilate. It's Herod the Great. It's Jerusalem. It's stories and places and people that we know and we can see in the history of mankind. And, and we can see how Christians grew, how the faith grew, and how they were persecuted. That they endured their faith because they believed not in a ghost, they believed in the resurrection and the melody that is the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that brings hope and life to the world. But then ultimately, there's the alto part. And the question is, the alto part is our part. What will our part be? What will our part sound like? The reason I love Joseph's story so much is that Joseph's part was to step forward. Previously, having been a secret follower of Jesus, he now steps forward into the public space and takes the body of Jesus and puts it in a tomb of his own making, identifies himself as a follower of Jesus. There's great legends about what, what Joseph of Arimathea went on to do because of that faith. But the question is not just about Joseph of Arimathea, but the question is, 
What part will you and I play? How will we step forward in our faith? How will we live identifying with the life, death, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus? I love how uh, theologian Howard Thurman put it, new life is stirring, new dreams are on the wing. New hopes are being readied. Humankind is fashioning a new heart. Humankind is forging a new mind. God is at work. This is the season of promise. That is the hope of the resurrection. I, I want to close this morning with something that I, I don't know that we, we've done at RCC much. I certainly don't do it much uh, here. And, and I want to offer you an opportunity after the gathering today. The band's going to come up and they're going to rock a song here in just a minute okay, to close. But I, I wonder if some of us are in a place of Joseph that we've sort of been hiding in the background for a while. We've sort of secretly been a follower of Jesus and and there's a stirring in our life and in our heart to publicly step forward and, and identify with the life of Jesus in, in our own life because of the sin that's been undone. And we want that forgiveness and we want God to breathe that breath of life into us to reconcile us to God and to one another. After the gathering today, I'm gonna, I usually go out to the, uh, to the um, greeting area and sit out there and, and meet a lot of you as you, uh, as you leave but I'm going to stay in here today. I'm going to stay up front. And Wendy filled the baptistry this week. This is an opportunity. We don't, again, we don't do this normally. But sometimes Easter Sunday is one of the best Sundays to step forward and identify with the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you are in need of that today, here's what I can tell you. We have dry shirts and plenty of towels. I can't do anything about your pants. I hope it's a short trip home. But we have plenty of towels to send with you. But I can tell you that there was a moment in my life where I had sat in the background for a while and there was a turn, there was a pivot of my own understanding of my identity of who I was as a follower of Jesus when I identified with the, the burial, the death of Jesus to be raised in the newness of life. And, and I just want to invite you and give you the opportunity to do that today of all days as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful that the story did not end with Jesus on the cross, we're so grateful that the story did not end with it is finished, that there was more to come, that there was resurrection, hope, life, and ultimately breath. And Father, we pray today for any of us who are here who are in need of that new life and fresh breath to blow, that wind to blow in our life, that we might have hope, grace, and forgiveness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.